Welcome to A Week is a Long Time in Politics, topical political talk for A-level politics students. Tune in and join in the debate. So our debate this evening is about whether the Prime Minister is too powerful. So we're, we're talking about the, the office of the Prime Minister rather than specifically Rishi Sunak, although no doubt... Um, you know, the powers of Rishi will come up in the discussion along with other prime ministers. You've probably focused on some specific prime ministers um, when you've been studying this um, during your A-level. Um, if we talk about some others, don't don't worry about that. Um, tell us about the ones you know about in the chat window. And do please join in in the chat window. Plenty of opportunities to give your opinions, ask a question, um, reach a judgment. Tell us we're wrong. <laughs> whatever you whatever you want to do. Um, now, we are taking different positions on this, as we have to do to have a proper debate about this. Um, I am going to be making the argument that the Prime Minister is too powerful. And Kira is going to be making the argument that um, the Prime Minister is not too powerful. And I thought just briefly to sort of start with that, and I'll put a little heading up on the screen for those of you who are watching, um, issue about the Cabinet. I just thought a little bit of background, because a little, quite a bit of my um, political education, early political education, took place by reading Tony Benn's diaries. I read them all cover to cover when I was a teenager, because that was a sort of exciting teenager existence I was I was uh, living at the time. Um, and he, along with another diarist of cabinets in the 60s and 70s, uh, Dick Crossman, um, you know, very much made this argument that there was prime ministerial government, that the control um, of the executive was very much in the hands of the prime minister. And um, that actually this idea that there was collective cabinet government was was something of a myth. Um that really the Prime Minister completely dominated it. And the irony, of course, is that the cabinets that they were describing, you know, the Harold Wilson and James Callaghan cabinets, were much, much more collegiate and cabinet-like than the ones that have happened since under Thatcher, Blair and all, the, all, all subsequent Prime Ministers. I mean, they met for hours. Um, you know, you'd have Tony Benn putting forward a an economic paper followed by Dennis Healy and them having a massive debate about who was right and stuff. I mean, none of that happens in cabinet meetings today. And obviously, you know, uh, Ben and Crossman felt that this was still too top heavy, too top down, too dominated by the prime minister. I mean, what they would have made of, well, we know, we know what um, Tony Ben made of the Thatcher and uh, Blair governments and um, what they'd make of government today. Uh, what they'd make of say Johnson or something would be would be fascinating. Um, so this is sort of my starting point, really, Kira. That you know, eminent commentators on these things thought that the prime minister was too powerful. Right back in the sixties and seventies, going back earlier than that, the idea of a prime minister being an elective dictator, um, and you know. The Prime Minister has only got more powerful in that time. The office of the Prime Minister has only got more powerful. They've sidelined the Cabinet um, to the point where it's essentially a rubber stamp. Um, it just goes with what is told. They meet much less frequently for much shorter time periods. Um, you know, quite often decisions have already been made by the time they come to Cabinet. Is this a yeah, fair, I think fair comment? 
It's a fair comment, and I, I think it's definitely true um, when looking at uh, Tony Blair and Margaret Thatcher. But I think it's less true when we look at subsequent prime ministers. I feel like Tony Blair and Margaret Thatcher were almost a rarity in the sense of their, their well, Tony Blair specifically had a three-figure majority. And I think first past the post can in some ways guarantee that, but it's it's seeing seem like it's going to be less likely now, especially as the, the country is a lot more divided. So I think, yes, with Tony Blair, he did rubber stamp um, Margaret Thatcher as well, and maybe to some extent the coalition government. But we're thinking about um, the nature of parties. They can't just um, decide to put across policies that aren't going to benefit and keep the rest of the party happy. So Liz Truss, for example, she didn't appoint um, enough of a diverse cabinet. Mm -hmm. And that lack of diversity meant that she was uh, Britain's shortest running prime minister. So they can't just ignore the different opinions mm -hmm. of the party and the cabinet as well. Fair enough. Although we could argue that Liz Truss is the exception rather than Blair and Thatcher. I mean, if we, th if we take, say, for example, Blair, um, although he kind of inherited his um, elected shadow cabinet for the first cabinet and had a few had a few sort of uh, lefties in it after that i mean they were very much his part his part of the party i mean the only person from a sort of more kind of democratic socialist sort of left of center position really in it was um prescott and obviously he was he was uh, directly elected as deputy prime minister and he couldn't really couldn't do anything about about that and he sort of sidelined him to a certain extent with some of the roles that he gave him even then I suppose the counter argument I shouldn't be giving counter arguments myself, but the one that people tend to use with Blair is Brown, of course. That you know that uh, they, you know, although they were initially allies, they obviously weren't seeing eye to eye on everything um, towards the later period of Blair's time, and he didn't ever um, sack him. So that's that whole kind of is it best to have people in the the tent and all that kind of thing. But ideologically, they were still pretty close, weren't they? They were still the sort of New Labour. Um, moderate wing of the party um i remember reading again in tony ben's diaries that uh david Miliband had an idea that they should have that blair should appoint tony ben um as uh into the cabinet as being in charge of um uh constitutional reform but it never happened and i think that idea on the one hand you think oh well that would you know placate people on the left it would like you know bring people into the tent you'd have a united party on the other hand you'd have massive arguments in the cabinet you'd probably resign within a week or two once they decided to cut uh, loan parent benefits or whatever and then then you've just made yourself a problem haven't you by having a yeah and i, I think that's the that's the point when we're thinking about the question is the prime minister too powerful we're thinking about it in terms of maybe what is the purpose of the prime minister and mm -hmm. it's about democratic but also effective governance and the prime minister has the not necessarily the personal mandate, but as the leader of the party, they have the direction of the party and that mandate through that. So they do need to have some degree of efficiency. So they do appoint people who will work with them. Um, so it, it makes sense that they will be the figureheads in that sense. But it's still quite important um, as well that they, they can do that. But it, it has limits. So if a prime minister just completely ignores their cabinet, there will be revolts and they will be removed. And it does happen to all prime ministers. The cabinet can 
claw back power through things like resignations. Mm. We saw Theresa May in 2018 had rapid resignations and she wasn't respecting her cabinet enough and they all just resigned en masse. So I think yeah. can actually restrict the power of the prime minister. So yeah, they do have it in the first instance, but the cabinet can always remind the prime minister that they are the dominant ones. I think that might be pushing it. I mean, they, they, I mean, there are these situations, aren't there, where the, I mean, the classic ones, Thatcher. Eventually, it was it was the cabinet that removed Thatcher rather than mm. the public or parliament or or the Conservative Party more broadly, who I think would have been very happy to keep Thatcher in for long because she was still very popular with the Conservative Party outside, um, outside the uh, the 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 cabinet uh, and parliament maybe, but. Um, that is still the exception, isn't it? I mean, mm. you know, because, and I you know, don't necessarily want to change our heading just yet. No, not that one. <laughs> that one. No, it wasn't that one. I'll, I'll stick it with the cabinet. I'll just leave it with the cabinet on. Because of the powers of patronage, essentially, in terms of the cabinet. I mean, they are, um, yeah, the prime minister chooses that cabinet. So, they, you know, yes, they can eventually turn on them as, as, as they did. Mm. Um in those cases but for the most part the cabinet backed the prime minister because they got their job thanks to them any pro potential future promotions are going to be down to them and so they only really tend to start revolting when they think that that prime minister's on the way out anyway maybe you know if there's if we're getting towards the end of a prime minister's tenure starting to think someone else is going to be in this role soon how can I get in their good books? <laughs> you know, then then maybe you start getting the resignations and things. Um, mm. Very few resignations, say, in the early days of Blair. Um, did get them in the early days of Thatcher. I think Thatcher was probably more, um, but it didn't do didn't do any harm. But you know, there were resignations. Um, mm. You know, from some of the wets, uh, as well as in, <laughs> but as well as her sucking <laughs> sucking them. Um, but um, you know. You think like uh, Tony Tony Blair, um, some very controversial policies quite early on, and uh, I think Harriet Harman was not particularly happy about being the minister, bringing in cuts for single parent, single parents, single mother uh, benefits, um, considering the sort of political priorities that she'd had, you know, prior to becoming a minister. But she didn't resign every. I, I, um, yeah, so they're <laughs> just just uh, picking up some of these issues um some people were unhappy about the nature of you know whether freedom of information act went far enough and all that kind of thing but they generally sat, sat pretty quiet about it It was only really when you started getting towards iraq um you know the later part of blair's premiership and very big issues i guess that you started getting the big name resignations mm -hmm. at any rate yeah, and I think that's it's also because the the power of the prime ministers are limited by cabinet. But also, one of the things that that limits it is um, the popularity of the prime minister. Mm -hmm. So, if uh, cabinet ministers that they want to maintain power, they of course need a prime minister that is popular with the people. Mm -hmm. So, a prime minister can only kind of be a bit more of it, maybe a small dictator, elected dictator, um, provided they have the support of the people. And once that support starts to go, then we do see more rapid resignations. I mean, that was one of the main causes of May's resignations. Um, so it's kind of, yes, there is a lot of power, but it, it can be clawed back if it goes against what the people want. 
So it's limited in the sense that we are still a democracy and the, the prime minister really does rely on a public backing. And when we saw Boris Johnson lose his public backing um, last year in 2021 in terms of um, Partygate and the scandals mm. around that, that's when the the kind of um, ministers started to resign. And we saw just the way Sunak resigned and that just clawed back the power of the cabinet against Boris Johnson. Mm -hmm. I think that, yeah, I think that is a fair point. Um, public support is a big thing. Um, I mean, if you look at something like, um, you know, the coalition government where, you know, David Cameron didn't have a majority, so, um, but the, the cabinet remained pretty, pretty united behind him despite that and managed to get most of what he wanted to do because they had a big majority, but they had a big majority because of the Liberal Democrats, and yet, you know, policies like tuition fees, etc., weren't, you know, there weren't significant cabinet resignations over that, despite, you well, know, they people did vote having... In favor of it, though, the Lib Dems, so that was the problem. The Lib Dems kept their promise and didn't vote to raise tuition fees that wouldn't have passed. No. Uh, exactly, so... exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is them, but, but that shows the power of the Prime Minister, even in that situation, you know, because that, there was a but, you know, that was a situation where, you know, a section of the cabinet and a section of, you know, basically the the government's majority could have said, well, actually, we're not we're not going to do that. You know, um, And obviously they decided that keeping the government going was more important than keeping your word on on those issues. But um, but but, you know, that does show power of the prime minister. I mean, I was going to say power of the executive, but the power of the prime minister, because you know, the deputy prime minister presumably had a sort of had a different view and he had to make that speech saying he's, he was sorry. Do you remember that one? <laughs> yeah. You can, I find mean, that on, you can find that on YouTube with, this, with the musical backing done as a little yeah, song. Yeah, Cassette Boy, was it? Yeah. <laughs> it might have been, yeah. With Nick Clegg was interesting because, he, I mean, I think that's separate because he hmm. actually personally supported um, the rising of tuition yes. fees. He just publicly I think that, Yeah, I so, think that is a, a, a yeah. big thing with that as well. Yeah. No, fair enough. So I don't know where the uh, viewing and listening public are on that first bit of the debate there about the role of the cabinet and the extent to which the prime minister dominates the cabinet. I think there's some you know, clear arguments on both sides. Of course, if this was an essay, at least certainly for an edXL A-level politics essay, you would need to be making a judgment you know, on each of these little mini debates within the big debate um, and deciding which way you came down on that, whether you agree with me or Kira on this question. Um, interestingly, I think because I think this is the classic question for this one. There's always a temptation to say, well, it depends, or maybe you know, if there's a big majority and uh, you know, then the prime minister is very powerful, and, but not in others. You have to go a bit beyond that. So you would have to say either something like because the first past the post, etc. There generally is a a working majority for prime ministers, so for most of the time they have this power. Or you could say, you know, in recent years, you know, with things like, you know, we've we've gone through prime ministers very quickly since uh, since twenty fifteen. Um, you know, maybe maybe the prime minister isn't such a powerful office anymore. And yeah, but make that kind of continued conclusion rather than you know you can make the well it depends point, but then you need to go beyond that and say, however, you know, you know, do come down on the side. Prerogative powers. Do you want to start on this one, Kira? Although I suppose really it's I suppose really it makes sense <laughs> yeah. for me to start on it as a 
you know, suggesting the Prime Minister's too powerful again, and you can uh, argue against it. So these royal prerogative powers are powers that constitutionally would have once belonged to a monarch. A bit like presidential powers in presidential type systems as well. There are powers that the kind of chief executive, the head executive, the head of government has. Um, and these are powers that one time the monarch had. Obviously, monarch has no real powers in our system anymore. And so those powers have um, become uh, the role of the prime minister. Um, so things like being able to declare war. Yeah, these are big powers to be able to declare war. Sign treaties. Um, that can be huge. If you think about all, I mean, obviously we've left the EU now, but all those EU treaties, you know, led to huge you know, constitutional and legislative changes in the UK, which um, could just be done by one person by signing that treaty. Um, lots of the patronage powers come under the royal prerogatives as well. Lots of people that the Prime Minister can appoint. Um, dissolving Parliament, choosing when to hold an election, obviously... Um, uh, that was briefly given away, that power. Um, David Cameron uh, gave that away with the uh, Fixed Term Parliament Act, but it's back with the Prime Minister now. If Rishi Sunak wanted to call an early, an election, early election, he could do. Not sure he will want to. Um, so these are big powers that Parliament has no constitutional official say on. Um, and there are lots of examples we can give of Britain going to war without a vote in Parliament, of, um, you know, all these, you know, all these lords and various people being appointed, you know, people being brought into Parliament, people being brought into the Cabinet who've never been elected by anyone um, without any real oversight of that. Um, some of that's been tempered over the years. You know, it used to be include like senior judicial figures and things like that as well. And, and much of that now. Is, uh, is done by an independent body. I mean, the Archbishop of Canterbury. The Prime Minister can appoint the Archbishop, Archbishop of Canterbury without. You know, I mean, when you start looking at this, this is a, this is a huge office um, and a hugely powerful and unaccountable, in these powers at least, office. Um, you know, we wouldn't tolerate a monarch having these powers. We tolerate the Prime Minister having them because... They are democratically elected, supposedly. But then, you know, what, you know, the last two weren't. And they, they, you know, it isn't actually, is it? It's the leader of the largest party. It's not like a president who we might think, oh, well, by being directly elected president, we're going to give those people certain powers within the system. This is a, these are big, unaccountable powers that someone is there, has got just because they're, just, just because they, they're the leader of the largest party in parliament. At the moment, this week. This <laughs> week, um, yeah. No, I think you've made some very good points, and it is interesting. And um, somebody just wrote in the comment that is the PM more powerful mm. than the US president. Um, I'd say technically, in many ways, uh, they do With, wield yield a lot more within that uh, country's constitution. Yeah, I mean, on a global scale, yeah. the president because America has more global power oh, yeah, than the, yeah. Yeah. yeah but but yes as a constitutional <laughs> role yeah i think it would be yeah true in to terms say of that, constitutional power yeah, there, there is, are more there restrictions more. on the president aren't there? there are more checks and balances on a president than there are on the prime minister yeah that's true so technically yeah 
the prime minister can yield more power within the country um but also in terms of um foreign foreign policy policy as well um but um yes in principle that is true but in reality i would argue probably not i'd say as well like one of the things is to do this is the constitution so the american president has a lot of power because sorry, has a limited power and checks and balances constitutionally defined. And in Britain, our constitution is unwritten, it's uncodified. And so there's not like a set limit to prime minister power in the same way as there is in the US. But the reason why our constitution is unwritten is because it's flexible and it is somewhat respected in principle. So technically, yes, the prime minister can declare war that is within their prerogative powers to do that realistically they won't necessarily do that i know tony blair did but because tony blair did it, well, to it be fair, there was a there was a vote on on iraq so yeah they, um yeah. they did they did have a parliamentary vote on on the iraq war tony blair i think did do it on some other conflicts but yeah um, yeah with uh, airstrikes right yeah yes um so we see that case okay, so tony blair and obviously the iraq war left quite a bitter taste in the population's mouth in terms of that decision so what happened is because our constitution is flexible sub- subsequent prime ministers are quite careful with airstrikes or any sort of um, use of hard power um abroad so we saw david cameron wanted to do airstrikes on syria in 2013 he had every legal right to do that without consulting parliament but because of the legacy of war in this country he decided to to talk to parliament about it or ask permission from parliament and parliament said no he could have ignored that vote constitutionally, but he decided not to. He decided to listen to Parliament. Uh, Theresa May also, um, after she performed airstrikes, she did consult Parliament technically after. afterwards. Well, yeah, technically it, was after. after, it was afterwards, though, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, she can't um, take it back. But I think it still shows that Parliament is seen as maybe the more legitimate uh, body when deciding on war rather than just the Prime Minister. Mm. But it, it is, I, I mean, I do... So I may sort of reiterate that point about afterwards because there have been a few cases where there's ended up being a parliamentary debate and a vote after troops have been committed or after um, mm. airstrikes have been have, have carried out. Um, and in those situations, it's very unlikely Parliament will take a different view. There will be some MPs who tend to always vote against um, military action or um, either because they've sort of pacifist views or... Mm. It's, strong political views on 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 issues of, of of foreign policy but the vast majority of mps who may have been quite skeptical of military action will tend to vote in favor of military action that's already happening or happened as a sort of well because otherwise it seems like you're not supporting the military and that can you know be an unpopular position to take so i mean that's in some ways that's a that's a power of the prime minister isn't it that they can manipulate these votes quite um cleverly and i don't want to sort of spill over into the um legislation sort of topic which i'm sure we'll come to um after this but um there's there's also situations where ministers and prime ministers have um turned a vote on military um intervention into a vote of confidence um uh, tony blair said you know, without kind of it ever being formally announced that the vote on the Iraq war was a, a vote of confidence, he allowed it to be known around the Parliamentary Labour Party that if he were to lose it, he would resign. I don't know whether he, don't know whether that's true, or whether he would have done, um, but that was certainly the the 
message that the whips were giving to um, wavering Labour backbenchers on the issue of the Iraq War. Um, and again, that's a power. That's a big power because mm-hmm. suddenly saying, "Well, you know, what would happen in a general election now? You know, the, uh, you know, um, even though they had a big majority, you know, because of the pop- unpopularity of the war. In fact, on that case, you know, you could some of these MPs might have found themselves losing their seats and losing their jobs, um, mm-hmm. and that could be quite a, you know, a significant factor in how people vote. The David Cameron one's an interesting one, mm-hmm. you know, because there is another potential argument there." that essentially he didn't want, you know, because I, I suppose the thing with Tony Blair is, you know, it doesn't show limitations to the Prime Minister's power because obviously he did it, he went ahead, got, you know, even though it was there were huge marches and everything, got to, carried on doing what he wanted. But afterwards, that became a thing that Tony Blair was very much blamed for and people would personally associate the war with Tony Blair, whereas obviously it was a collective cabinet decision to some extent people lots of people voted for it all the cabinet you know only two or three ministerial resignations so they all had responsibility for that decision but it became Blair's war and so I do feel there was there was a bit of a feeling on the part of um, Cameron to share responsibility and wasn't necessarily too unhappy not to go ahead with it Um, you know you could if it went if people ended up thinking it was the wrong decision you could blame Ed Miliband um, <laughs> um, but 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 he wasn't uh, going to get the personal blame for these things because there were of course other interventions under Cameron like uh, Libya etc so it wasn't the only um, yeah I, I think that just supports my argument right that effectively <laughs> the thing that's most important the power really rests with with the people in this country and it's all about public opinion if um, Cameron did those strikes and it was unpopular, that would lead to his his demise. Even Tony Blair was something that kind of really ruined his reputation as mm-hmm. a prime minister. And prime ministers have to be careful. They can't be too draconian. They have to kind of, in some ways, respect what the people mm-hmm. are saying. And it's a good comment here, actually, it's a really good point. Uh, did Cameron consult parliament because of coalition? He wouldn't have had a huge majority. I think that's really interesting because true in some points mm. um, with a coalition he has to think a bit more carefully mm-hmm. but is that kind of this sort of smaller government I mean smaller majorities for government kind of the, the future of our political system anyway because we're a lot more divided as a country mm. and that's kind of maybe the political area that we're in now mm. we're not the same as we were uh, 20 years ago yeah I mean potentially I mean I totally take your point that you know, on this one particular prerogative power, we'll come to some of the others <laughs> in a moment. Um, it has become a sort of new convention to have a vote, not necessarily prior to the uh, intervention, although, you know, increasingly so. But it is interesting because Gordon Brown talked about formally getting rid of that prerogative power, you know, formally making Parliament have to have, to have a say on it. But he didn't do it and no one's done it since. And it does feel like Prime Minister's you know, choose to keep that option open, don't they? Choose they, as and Theresa May used it. You know, I know she did end up having a vote afterwards, but you know, they did send um, mm. planes out to do airstrikes in Syria um, without any discussion in Parliament. Now, you could make a case for why that's important. As our military, you know, we're we're not doing military studies, but you know, there <laughs> might be times when um, 
you know, you want to surprise attack and you're having a big debate about it in Parliament or, or whatever, um, or, or where, you know, where you need to act in defence or, um, and or where, you know, there's some decisions have to be taken that can't be necessarily had in a big public debate in a military situation. But it is shows that, you know, essentially the Prime Minister is reserving a very important power um, and seeks to share responsibility um, a lot of the time because they don't, you know, by sharing responsibility, you, you can absolve yourself of some of the blame potentially or, you know, politically at least doesn't necessarily yeah. make you less powerful it's a, it's a powerful choice to be allowed to make isn't it i you know when i want to i can declare war launch military actions on a whim when i want to i can uh blame it <laughs> yeah they would <laughs> or, or whatever it might be yeah and i think that's it, it does rely on an argument of trust um mm. in our politicians but on the whole um I don't think that they would do something like that on a whim. It is always something that's going to be quite considered and they'll think about it before they do it. Um, is a fixed-term Parliament Act likely to make a comeback to limit Prime Minister Power? That's a good question. Yeah. Um, Can we just finish yeah. on the military? Can we just finish? We'll come to the okay. All right. Just finishing on the military. I'll just want it more. Because you're saying <laughs> yeah. that, that, that governments wouldn't ever do it on a whim. But governments with a big majority, I mean, not on a whim. On a whim would be putting it too strongly. But... In the face of opposition, in the face of disagreement, governments or, you know, in situations where, you know, a debate, a discussion, a collegiate discussion may well think, actually, maybe this isn't the right thing. I think governments do and have committed troops and and um, declared war and uh, done these things because they're able to, you know. I, anyway, I digress. So, so um, yeah, but this point about... Uh, the timing of a general election. So that's another prerogative power, um, mm. dissolving parliament. And uh, I don't know how to pronounce the name, Fletchy32, I hope I've got that right, um, has asked, could the fixed-term parliament make a comeback? Obviously, it's only just been got rid of. Um, and it was brought in initially for a very specific purpose, and that was to to keep, to basically stabilise that... Um, that uh, Oh, there's a thing about was was Thatcher and Falklands. Yeah, I'm waiting for. Yeah. I was going to say a bit of evidence I, to say that they would do it on a whim would be great, but. <laughs> uh, well, you're wanting me to give a give an example. Yeah, when, when have we gone to war on a whim? Not that I necessarily agree with any of the wars that we've gone on, but. Well, I, I did say maybe not a whim. I mean, to be honest, <laughs> the Falklands is an interesting one, but I don't want us to get into a massive debate about the Falklands now. Um, yeah, the... that's true. Was Nin it about her or about the Falklands? That's another thing. Um, 1998 airstrikes on Iraq. I mean, uh, the 2003 is the more controversial Iraq one, of course, but I mean, it probably would be unfair to say it was on a whim because there was so much debate and argument about it beforehand. Although, you know, you could argue that the decision was taken between Tony Blair and George W. Bush without, and then the rest of that was, was essentially pantomime and theatre. Um, but anyway, sorry, we, di <laughs> we digress. So back on the election timings. So um, it was for a very specific reason, wasn't it? The coalition, that it was like, well, if you, you know, both sides of the coalition wanted to feel that both parties were in it for five years as far as possibly could be. And so if you took out that idea that David Cameron might think two years into the coalition, oh, we'd probably get a majority now, let's have another 
election, um, then it, it gave sort of confidence to the Liberal Democrats um, that they were, yeah, they were proper coalition partners rather than just there because they were necessary. Um, and in some ways, it's interesting that we carried on after that because it never worked after that because we kept having elections. So although there was this fixed term parliament, you know, um, you know, from twenty fifteen, we've had we've had quite a few of these pesky elections, haven't we? So um, it stopped stopped kind of working um, after twenty fifteen, and so it sort of made sense to get rid of it. I, I'd have thought the only likely scenario where it might come back is another coalition. Would be my my kind of uh, feeling wasn't hugely popular because it didn't really work um i suppose that's not really a point about the powers of the prime minister um because it wasn't just yeah. a prime ministerial whim to uh to um take that power back because once there was a fixed term parliament act then that act had to be properly um repealed through parliament so although um you know prior to 2010 the date of a prior, the date of general elections within the 5 years was was a parliament was a prime ministerial power it is again now the adoption and removal of the fixed term parliament act was not a prime ministerial power that was a parliament that was parliamentary sovereignty that was parliament that did it and they could they could choose to do it again but it wouldn't be just up to rishi sunak or or whoever might follow him yeah i um, think it was incredibly unpopular with the people um so it went and i think it was partly to do with the way that boris johnson really kind of dragged it through the mud in the press and argued that it made the government very inefficient and so forth. Um, so I can't see it coming back just because I don't think, I, yeah, like you said, I don't think it particularly worked that well. Um, although it did at first, it was quite embarrassing when he was trying to push for a general election and it just wouldn't happen. Um, no. Yeah. But I think the reason why it didn't work and didn't work then is that um, and the Prime Minister knew that so I don't think the Prime Minister really lost that power and I think Theresa May showed that the Prime Minister didn't really lose that power because she was able mm. to call an election and, and again Boris Johnson did um, was that really there are very few situations where an opposition would turn down a general election I mean even if they thought we're going to lose this and I really don't want a general election really you know it would be so sort of humiliating to say no we want the government to stay in power We, you know, mm. please please keep governing us you know, you know it's sort of totally a uh, disarms the opposition at the you know from that um that that point onwards um but it's interesting because in years gone by the idea of a sort of fixed term parliament was seen as a as as a major um uh, constitutional demand of people who wanted constitutional reform and you know something which would limit the powers of the prime minister but in practice it didn't um the way the way it existed I mean, the the interesting thing would be if you could have a situation where you had um, a fixed term parliament act where there were no there were no ways to get to a or certainly no easy ways to get to an early general election, but that mm. could be very unpopular in a different way, I suppose. I mean, the, one of the interesting things about 2010 2015 is that probably there should have been a general election a bit before 2015. I mean, the government had run out of stuff to do by sort of 2014 um the last sort of year of that government they didn't really introduce much legislation or anything so it's a you know the you know it hasn't it hasn't really worked out in practice that particular thing mm. but but anyway there's another prerogative power prime minister can yeah rishi sunak could have a look at the polls thing this is not going to happen under Rishi Sunak, of course, because at the moment no. the polls, polls are not, not, not uh, in his favour. But in theory, they think, 
or they could have a look at the economic projections and think, oh, things are going to be even worse in uh, next year. Let's have a, an election. This is where we get the best possible outcome. And that's a big power. But you could even um, argue Parliament could call an election if they wanted to anyway. They can have a vote of confidence in the Prime Minister. They could make an argument that they don't have faith in Rishi Sunak and call a general election. So it kind of can go both ways too. The Prime Minister is not that sturdy. But that won't happen, will it? I mean, no, it wouldn't. There, yeah. There've been a couple of examples, I suppose. Um, I suppose nineteen seventy nine of uh, vote no confidence leading ultimately to a general election. Um, but generally speaking, you know, governments have majorities, and so you know, mm-hmm. everyone rallies around. Um, <coughs> you know, when people were looking at particularly over the Brexit issue and what the what are the routes to. Um, to potentially, you know, to avoid a no-deal Brexit was the debate at the time, and so it all seems a long time ago now. It wasn't really; it was only a couple of years ago. Um, mm. You know, the discussion about how Parliament could um, could engineer a change of government, you know, was had, and and it was actually a lot more difficult than than you might imagine. There was a majority against a no-deal Brexit within parliament but there wasn't a majority for an alternative government <laughs> um and you know that's likely to often be the case i should i should think um yeah and there are these other prerogative powers as well i mean powers of treaty doesn't feel quite as big outside the eu as it did in it because some of the biggest examples of powers of treaty sort of limiting other parts of um the uh seen a comment there patronage powers discuss we've talked a bit about patronage powers we'll talk a bit more in a minute um i think that yeah the power treaty can still be a big thing obviously this again this won't happen and i suppose a lot of these things are about the theoretical powers of prime ministers versus the actual in reality powers of prime ministers in theory um we could have a general election in two years time different prime minister come in and decide to sign a treaty with the eu and rejoin the EU without a referendum, without a vote. They could do, yeah. <laughs> yeah there's nothing, nothing constitutionally preventing them from doing that. There's a lot democratically and politically uh, stopping them from doing that, but um, not constitutionally. And then another prerogative power, as mentioned in there, is patronage. Lots of the patronage powers, um, you know, come there. And there's a big, I mean. Again, the Prime Minister could flood the House of Lords with supporters. Yes, technically they could. But I think, again, it, it has its limits because there is transparency in the sense that we know who's being appointed and things. And because we have... Because par- Parliament might, might not have um, prerogative powers, but it does have the power to call the Prime Minister to question. So we're thinking about PMQs, it's the opportunity to shed light on any appointments that a Prime Minister is mm. making. And if they flood the Lords with loads of people and then um, make them ministers in the cabinet, those things will be um, questioned. Um, and you also even have the liaison committee as well, which does question the Prime Minister to ensure that things are above board or democratic so yes they could technically do that but i think the other things and checks and balances try to reduce the opportunities for that how effective are these checks and balances though i mean you know ultimately what has 
prevented prime ministers doing from literally whatever they like has been eventually their own party removing them and replacing them with someone else for the reasons that we've talked about already. I mean, Boris Johnson was not particularly swayed by Supreme Court judgments, arguments in um, in uh, parliamentary committees, even police investigations. You know, not, you know, um, you know. I'm Prime Minister. I'll do what I like, and it was, you know, his own MPs ultimately that sort of put a put a halt to this, um, with a view to making someone else powerful instead. You know, to, to, to create another powerful powerful Prime Minister. Um, yeah, that's true. But and I think that, but that's not something small. So in terms of the um, judicial reviews and um, Supreme Court decisions, they Boris Johnson did have to step back and and respond to them and listen to them because it would be incredibly anti democratic if he didn't. He didn't technically legally have to listen to them, but he did because of that. And um, a party overthrowing or removing their prime minister isn't something small and yet that is actually any mechanism that you can really get rid of a prime minister but it's it's the most powerful one anyway and i think and, it is the case and it is a limitation on the prime minister's power i'll, I'll agree yeah i mean just I on them uh, responding to things i mean you know even go back to this other blair government and you know obviously the the um supreme court or prior to that law lords um did put some restrictions on some of the anti-terror legislation that they wanted to bring in, like how long they could detain people for and, and, and that sort of thing without trial. Um, but what tended to happen then was that, you know, they'd find a way around it rather than it being like, oh, well, we can't do that then because that's that's um, unconstitutional. You know, that's goes against the Human Rights Act. It'd be like, oh, well, if we can't do that, then we can put them under house arrest and do it. You know, they'd, they'd, they'd try and find ways to still get the same outcome if you like um and of course you know just like with boris johnson was you know saying really critical of um the judges you know saying that they were saboteurs and i think theresa may even used that sort of language didn't she about um judges in relation to brexit you got the same sort of um language being used about judges over um you know uh kind of security anti-terror type legislation in the in the 90s um oh there's a there's an interesting one in there about cameron didn't have to accept the brexit referendum technically that's true yeah yeah um technically politically I, I, technically politically. is a good word. technically yeah. the minister yeah. is too powerful politically they're not <laughs> yeah and, and that that's 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 an interesting discussion there is also oh sorry do you want to say anything else about some of these prerogative powers before maybe as we get towards our conclusion, we might address this point about the media because I think that's quite an interesting point. We could maybe, yeah, I think maybe that, include it in our conclusion. But should we? Do you want to say anything else about prerogative powers? For yeah, no, I just think it's always ultimately limited because if a prime minister does go use those powers um, aggressively um, or is harmful to the public, uh, they will eventually be overthrown. So I think there is limits in that sense. Yeah. Okay. I mean, just on a sort of point about the media. I, th I think possibly there might be more on your side of the argument on the media one, but I'll uh, but we'll go with it for a second. Has it contributed to an increased power in the PM? When a, again, I mean, this is that thing when a prime minister is popular, um, they can use the media um, in quite powerful ways. I mean, we were talking about Theresa May talking about judges as being saboteurs. I, see, I seem to remember there was a 
a front page of like the mail or something wasn't it like smash the saboteurs or something like that about the um about enemies of the people enemies call of the them people enemies. yeah um and yeah the media when it's on side can be a very powerful ally to a prime minister and can um you know can help uh the prime minister be very powerful and if they've got an effective press office if you think about the role of alistair campbell under tony blair for example um prior to iraq and this role you know the role really did change after iraq, i think uh, in terms of the effectiveness of managing the media but you know when the when a prime minister is popular and you know they've got effective media management strategies that can absolutely um help the powers of the prime minister and make them more powerful but i suspect kira might have a flip side to that <laughs> yeah and I, I think there can be and when we think about things like spin doctors and that relationship between special advisors and the press it's very problematic when we're thinking about democracy but the power of um the media although it is quite prominent in society it does have its limits so we saw for example um when liz truss released her mini budget um it was called a budget then i think but anyway she when she released that um the daily mail were praising it and saying this is the best thing ever finally a prime minister who makes sense and yet it still failed so they can be a powerful ally and even when they're supporting the prime minister because they were even quite positive about boris johnson and trying to minimize a lot of the um scandals mm. that he was doing or some of them um, yeah. Mm. yeah some of them but yeah sorry some, like the more right-wing papers yeah but um as public opinion still shifted despite what the media was saying the media just love a decaying corpse and just jump in anyway yeah. and, and kind of go with what public opinion mm. wants because their motive is to sell newspapers so mm. the media is powerful and it does have an impact but it's not necessarily telling people what to think. It doesn't influence it too. But even with um, the mail calling um, the Supreme Court the enemies of the people, it didn't change anything. It meant that Theresa May still had to go to Parliament and ask them to trigger Article 50. Mm. And we see that there are these things that limit prime ministerial power. So yes, prerogative powers, she could technically decide to leave because of uh, the referendum as well. But she was still reined in. Yeah, Parliament still had to, element. yeah, constitutionally, Parliament still had to have a say on that on that point. Um, interesting, they didn't have to say on joining, but they did have to have a say on leaving, which is interesting. Mm. But but um, <laughs> just because of the nature of the uh, you know of the legislation, but um, the and I suppose yeah, the the other thing and again conceding a point to your side is that obviously as well as the media being able to be a powerful ally, it can also be a very powerful opponent i mean i was thinking i can't actually remember which magazine or journal it was that had b liar um had blair's name but changed it to b b dot liar around the time of iraq it was a, it was a big you know big thing um yeah you know, just swapped the i and the a around to make it b and b liar um but people still sometimes yeah but sometimes people still sometimes uh pays yeah you know, when they're talking about blair will still sometimes do that um you know that sort of yeah very you know as you say you know just a you know throwaway headline or whatever but can be very effective um you know that idea that he wasn't trustworthy or whatever did you know undermine him for the rest of his premiership having been very popular up till up till that point um for the most part for the most part not with everybody obviously but um you know as prime ministers go <laughs> you know one of the more popular ones up to that point 
Um, and probably sort of integrity and stuff was seen as one of his selling points. You know, I remember when the Bernie Eccleston affair took place and that might have caused real problems for a lot of prime ministers. You suddenly, you know, there's this idea that maybe, you know, donor make, giving a load of money had affected government policy. Um, but he just did a TV broadcast apologising and stuff and everyone was like, oh, that's really good. That's what, you know, that's a refreshing change. Politicians apologising and saying, you know, being open about it. <coughs> and again, you know, the end of his premiership when there were questions about um, people getting uh, peerages because of loans that they made to the Labour Party. You know, there was none of that, um, oh, what a refreshing change Tony Blair's telling us about this. It was like, oh, well, that's just what we'd expect from him, corrupt liar or whatever. And that, yeah, that was a media, partly a media, I mean, he brought it on himself, you could argue, but it's partly the way the media presented him in the last three or four years of his premiership as well. Um, and similar with you know, Margaret Thatcher, things that were seen as a positive early on like being very uh, certain of herself and sure of herself and making kind of strident statements towards the end of her premiership that was seen as a sort of oh that yeah we don't want to see that kind of thing she sounds starts to sound like a dictator or she thinks she's the queen or something you know people mm. people's attitude changes um yeah and i think the same thing to like mm. wrap, wrap this kind of like criteria as part of the argument of mm. i'm going to use what flatchy was saying so um Yes, prerogative powers technically make the prime minister very powerful, but practically they can't be just used and abused. There are limitations to them. Okay. And I think that's that's true. And this is actually one of these problematic questions, isn't it? Where, yes, the prime minister is too powerful. I know the prime minister isn't powerful enough, isn't really quite enough. But we do have yeah. to... Do and, to... and that's what's good about the exam questions actually they're very extreme so mm -hmm. because they're extreme it's quite easy to take a position on it so catastrophize the argument that's how you kind of win it <laughs> the <Yeah>. newspapers so. <laughs> <laughs> um so i'm gonna my conclusion if it was my essay and i was concluding it's going to be the prime minister is too powerful um because most of the time the prime minister has a large um majority um historically that's been the case it's likely to i mean actually still still has a decent majority you know, the, um at the moment um it's boris johnson's majority but we don't <laughs> you know it's uh does still have one um and there are lots okay lots of these powers are kind of on paper and they won't necessarily always use them but the potential to use them is a powerful thing in itself and the powers of patronage often means that people will do what the prime minister wants without um, without the Prime Minister actually having to kind of force them to because they yeah, they want promotion, they want to keep their roles, they want to stay in in office. Um, so that would be sort of how I'd conclude it along the lines of the Prime Minister is too powerful. Do you want to do a quick concluding statement, Kira, and then we'll put it to the vote? <laughs> Don't know how okay. many people are, are uh, <laughs> going to join in with a vote, but we'll have a quick go. Um, yeah, so I'd say that the Prime Minister, in terms of um, electorally, can, when it has a majority, they can actually pass things fairly easily. But that only depends on the fact that that's what the will of the people is because they were elected. So that's a democratic right that they have. Um, I'd also say that patronage is um, a limited power in the sense that they are not able to just appoint whoever they want. Uh, whenever Prime Ministers like Liz Truss have done that, they've failed. Um, Gordon Brown was in uh, Tony Blair's cabinet and Gordon Brown did kind of keep Tony Blair to the left of um, 
left of the political spectrum in that sense. So he did yield yield a lot of power because ultimately prime minister prime ministerial power depends on the unity of the party. That's how you pass legislation. Um, that's how a party go- is effectively effectively governs. So whenever um, whenever that party is fractured, the prime minister tends to lose power completely. And we've seen that in the way that. Tony Blair was kind of pushed out, Margaret Thatcher was, Boris Johnson was, Liz Truss was, um, Theresa May was. So we've got practically most of the prime ministers in the recent terms have had to be removed by their parties. So there is always a limit to them in the sense that the party will remove them and the party removes them because of um, public opinion, which is an informed public because of the transparency in the political system. Okay, that sounded very good to me. Um, I, I had one counter argument to one bit of it. I've probably I've forgotten what it was, but it probably we've probably done enough back and forth. That, that I was my plan. If I talk long enough, you forget. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, it was it was one bit to a, to a certain extent. I think you've already done the counter argument to my counter argument, which was of course Boris Johnson, with you know basically kicked out a significant part of the um, parliamentary Conservative Party shortly before the twenty. Uh, 19 election a lot of the uh you know the remainers were had the whip withdrawn and so were replaced by other conservative candidates in the election that He's followed he, he has I gone now but end. um but but it, it that didn't stop him winning a big majority i admittedly has gone later but that was because mm, of other true. things really not because of not because of that um so you know to a certain extent Prime ministers, and I suppose we could say leaders, based on what's happening across the uh, across the chamber at the moment, can to a certain extent shape their parliamentary parties in their image if they choose to. It's actually a fairly rare thing to happen. I mean, you know, for the most part, you know, leaders don't inter- interfere too much with uh, the selection of candidates, etc. But um, both parties have done a bit of that in recent recent times. That's a different issue, really, isn't it? But um, you know, does does potentially contribute to the power of a prime minister if they've got a a largely agreeable set of MPs, not too many mm. rebels. Mm. Anyway, that's, uh, <laughs> which didn't work for, didn't work out for Boris Johnson. Be interested to see if it works out for others. Should they become prime minister? Um, I don't know who I'm talking about. So, what do we think, people watching? Um, you don't have to say that one or other of us won because obviously we were conceding each it's, other's points argument, uh, quite a lot. Yeah. But yeah, which which side of the argument would you, if you were forced to come down one side or the other, and you are, not now, obviously, <laughs> but if you were writing this essay, you would be, which way would you jump? Do you think the Prime Minister is too powerful or is not too powerful? Oh, sorry, there was legislation as well, wasn't there? But we've run out of time. But we've talked about it, I think, in terms of majorities and yeah. keeping the parties together and all that kind of thing. I think we've think we have covered that um what where do we think anyone gonna stick their neck out in the chat and say which way they would they would jump is the prime minister too powerful or not what do we think about the current prime minister is rishi sunak particularly powerful Hmm. seems to have kept things a bit quieter politically Mm -hmm. although not so much with Gavin williamson that's a nice powerful, but realistically not. Yeah. Yes, but it, 
<laughs> but but actually that could be a an off the fence answer isn't it because essentially you're saying they're not too powerful you say although there's a there's a large number of potential powers in reality you know in fact they're not too powerful um tories but i don't think the pm is too powerful but if their own party is willing to protect them despite their failings there's not much that can be done that's true okay, yeah so so i mean that is an interesting point because kira has essentially argued that the main the main check or balance on the prime minister's power and i know you've mentioned others like uh, supreme court etc as well but the main one is their own party so mm. if you have a, a powerful prime minister who's popular with their party despite being unpopular with everyone else then you know yeah. they, they can be protected although as kira said before um you know mps are interested in their own survival as well aren't they and if they think a prime minister is bringing them down bringing down them you know essentially to a yeah. extent what we probably saw with Liz Trust in terms of a sudden big shift in the polls. Um, yeah. Suddenly the survival instinct kicks in, doesn't it? I mean, t- yeah, God, yeah. Uh, Boris Johnson, I think, was probably still quite popular with, with um, you know, certainly the newer Conservative MPs who got elected under him. Um, but quite a lot of them still ended up, you know, saying they had no confidence in him uh, with the 1922 committee because, you know, they wanted to win... They wanted to keep their seats at the next election and were worried. That... Yeah, and I think that that's kind of the key difference with the US system because in the US system, um, one of the roles of the prime minister, sorry, one of the roles of the parties is almost to be like a guardian mm. um, of democracy in a sense. Like who are the who's the candidate that they're putting forward? That's quite important. And of course, the Republicans put Trump in, and you could see that. Well, I mean, they kind of failed at protecting democracy mm. in that sense because he's quite extreme, but. Um, it's different in the UK because the MPs and the party are so tied to the success of the prime minister. It means that they are going to kind of act in whatever the public needs. So there is always going to be that limit. And I think maybe I, hopefully I'm never wrong about this, but um, I think they will remove a prime minister that's unpopular because then they're kind of saying goodbye to their careers because it's so tied in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, often there are, there are conflicting um, pressures on people. So, you know, it might be that a prime minister is unpopular with the public, but popular with party members or vice versa. And, and and then how, which of those pressures people respond to more, um, you know, will vary probably from person to person. And, you know, if you're in a very safe seat, probably not too worried about your prime minister being, your leader being unpopular, but you might be worried about, you know, them being unpopular with your local party members because they might want to replace you with a different uh, candidate in the next election and that kind of thing. So different different pressures might affect different MPs differently, etc. Yeah. Um, I suppose the only other thing is, of course, you get prime ministers who uh, might be less powerful because of their individual role. I'm just thinking of, um, you know, there was a lot of talk about whether um, Boris Johnson might come back. Um, but his seat is pretty um, pretty vulnerable at a forthcoming election. And obviously, you wouldn't want a prime minister to potentially lose their seat in a general election. Um, but yeah, and actually, we, we even saw that he, that's actually maybe on the flip side. He is quite popular with the people. He probably would have won, but the party wouldn't have voted with him, so he wouldn't have been able to pass legislation. So it shows that there are limits. Hmm. Yeah. It's all good stuff, isn't it? Yeah, and we had lots of nice answers there. So basically everyone's sitting on the fence, but not properly. You know, people are coming down on 
on one side. It's fine to acknowledge that there are legitimate arguments on both sides of the argument because there are, but you mm. do need to, you do need to sort of feel, you know, you know, you do need to be able to go beyond there's good sides, good points on both sides. You need to sort of say, however. Um, yeah i think as long as you define that well so um like flatchy said potentially too powerful but realistically not if that's like the argument that you follow through i think that that works quite well because your argument is ultimately that they're not too powerful and then i guess your counter is potentially and that's like a nice way to set up an essay the beginning of the paragraph is proving the potential um and then the however realistically and we've had you could have brought that into every you know into each of our paragraphs if you like i know we've not been talking through an essay but you could if you saw it that way you could have had that sort of debate couldn't you on mm. each one and that would make for for a pretty strong conclusion then um thanks for this kira i've enjoyed it again in a couple Thank of you. weeks time we'll have a we'll have another debate next week we'll have a look at the news we'll have to have a look at these um midterm uh midterm congressional elections won't we amongst other things mm. next time when we're talking about the uh, last couple of weeks in politics because obviously that's very much in the news today um but in two weeks time i don't know feel free to put some suggestions for our debates in the uh, chat window it might be do we need to change the voting system it might be should 16 year olds be allowed to vote it might be um do, should we have a written constitution all sorts of possible things we might debate but do by all means uh put some suggestions either in the chat window but that'll disappear soon so maybe in the the uh permanent comments down at the bottom of the youtube thing we'll keep an eye on those as well all right thanks very much cheers kira i'll see you Thank soon you. and thanks everyone Bye-bye. thanks Thank for you. your contributions bye a week is a long time in politics has been brought to you by tutor to you politics for all your a-level politics resources and revision workshops